Well, good evening, church. If you'll take your copy of the scriptures and turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 28. First Samuel 28. Well, today is the day after Halloween, so you may be in a candy coma, and I understand. If that didn't get you, then the spaghetti might have gotten you. It's the day after Halloween, which is a strange and dark holiday in our American secularist consumer society. It's a day that's confused and often means different things to different people. How could a day be dark that my five-month-old son dressed it up as a lion, rawr, right? And batted his eyes, right? That's not dark, right? It is very confusing in American culture. And one of the things that Americans seem to like to do is that we seem, broadly speaking, is we like to celebrate terror and evil. Did you see any scary costumes yesterday? Americans love to be scared. We even love to celebrate evil and darkness. If you look at Hollywood and the types of movies that are celebrated and put out this time of year, it's, it's very evident. And though the Bible certainly does not celebrate evil, that would be an incredible understatement, the Bible is full of scary things. It's no coincidence, but I think it's providence that the day after Halloween, we are studying a passage in the Bible where there's a witch who is talking to the dead, right? So that is what we have before us in 1 Samuel 28. Anyone read 1 Samuel 28 in their quiet time this morning? It's a good one. We're going to read it together. It's that we have this witch, this nameless woman, this necromancer who is often known as the witch of Endor. And judging only by the elements of this story, this has to be one of the creepiest passages in the Bible. And not only is there a witch, or it's not only talking to the dead that is scary in this passage, but I would say there's something scarier. And that's the spiritual state of King Saul. As we have been studying this passage, or as I've been studying this passage this week, a text from Ephesians chapter 2 kept coming to my mind as a description of our lives before Christ, speaking of believers before Christ and speaking of the spiritual condition of all of those in the world who are today without Christ. Listen as I read Ephesians 2 verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope And without God in the world. Having no hope and without God in the world. What is it like to live utterly without without hope and without God in the world? Well, tonight we will get a picture of that. Perhaps some of you remember what that is like. We all have moments where we flash back and sometimes live like that. But King Saul will be for us tonight a very clear picture In April 1945, there were a lot of things that were going very bad for Hitler and for the German troops. The Russians were closing in from the east and the Americans and other allied forces were closing in from the west. It was a situation that was desperate for the Germans, so desperate that all hope should have been totally lost. Yet Hitler and his cabinet were grasping at straws. I read of a story of how Hitler received a message at the end of April, right before the war ended, 
of from his uh, from his comrade Joseph Goebbels, who was his minister of propaganda, that he finally had good news. He excitedly told him, "Franklin D. Roosevelt is dead." The reason that Goebbels was so excited about this was because he had a horoscope of sorts. Goebbels and Hitler had been informed of an astrological prediction that forecasted that in the early months, the first months of 1945, would be very, very hard for the German army and the German agenda. But that later, Germany would triumph in overwhelming victory. And, and for Goebbels, who was clearly grasping at straws, when he saw that the American president had died, he saw that as the fulfillment of this astrological prophecy. Yet as any student of history knows, this prophecy was wrong. For just a few days later, Hitler committed suicide and was followed the next day by his minister of propaganda. You see, when the godless are desperate and without hope, they will stoop to pitiful and humiliating levels to find something to hold on to. We have a great deal to learn from this creepy passage this evening. Not only will we learn about the Bible's view of witches and dark magic, but we will see a picture of utter hopelessness, of those who face the darkness of life without God. And this will in turn enable us to see with much more clarity and much more joy the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. So the main idea before us this evening is something like this, that for those who have rejected God as their ruler... They live utterly without hope in the world. And though they have the temporary pleasures of sin to comfort them, they will one day, perhaps soon, discover that they are insufficient as they face the problems of life and of death. And they're left only with anxiety and fear. Yet for those who trust in Christ, peace, hope, and security abound even in the face of death. Let's read this chapter together. 1 Samuel chapter 28. Follow along with me. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Ashik said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. And David said to Ashik, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Ashik said to him, very, said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Verse 3. Now Samuel had died. And all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and camped at, Sh- at Shin- Shinem. And Saul gathered all Israel and they camped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by the Urim, or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servant, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul, verse 8, disguised himself and put on other garments and went, and he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night, and he said, Divine for me a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. And the woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. 
Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, Bring up Samuel for me. Verse 12, When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You're Saul. And the king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. And he said to her, What is his appearance? And she said, An old man is coming up and he's wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel. And he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore I have summoned you to tell me what I should do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Then Saul fell at once, full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand and have listened to you, to what you said to me. Now therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat, that you may have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants, together with the woman, urged him, and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Verse 24, Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house, and she killed it quickly. She took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it. And she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they rose and went away that night. This is the inspired word of the Lord. May it bring blessing as we hear it and respond. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your help tonight. Would you incline our hearts to your testimonies, not to selfish gain? Would you open our eyes to see beautiful and wonderful things in your word? Would you help us to see the dangers of sin and the follies of life apart from you? Would you reveal to us the beauty of Jesus? We ask, O God, that tonight you would speak to us. So let my words fall to the ground, blow away, and be forgotten. Let your word remain and let it bear fruit in our lives by your spirit as we obey. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, there are a number of lessons that we can learn from this text. I fear that we will not get to them all in the time we have this evening. But let's let's start by trying to take this passage scene by scene. And then let's see if we can understand what's what's going on. The first, remember we we finished with verses 1 and 2 last week. So let's start in verse in verse 3. The first scene would be verses 3 through 7, which are describing the situation that Saul is in. You'll remember that where we left off last week, that the king of the Philistines, the guy with the funny name, informed David that he was going to attack Israel and that he expected for David, who was living among them, to join him with his men. And so that's the setting of this chapter when all of a sudden we go from David and his predicament and it flashes forward, flashes over to Saul. Verse 2 just drops us 
and David's situation. And all of a sudden, we hear about Saul and Samuel and necromancers and, and, and that stuff going on. But Saul has a problem. This Philistine army that David is, is being coerced to team up with is now threatening Saul. And Saul is sort of freaking out. The first thing he does in verse 3, the author does, is to remind us of something that we already know. Samuel, the prophet of the Lord, the one who, the mouthpiece for God, is dead. He's died. But we already know that. Right along with that, we are immediately reminded of the fact that Saul has expelled all the practitioners of the dark arts, the mediums and the necromancers, out of the land. This was according to the Lord's command. There are numerous commands like this, the most prominent being in Deuteronomy 18, where the Lord said to Israel, There shall not be found among you one who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. Now, why would these two facts be pieced together? Why would we be told that Samuel's dead and the fortune tellers and the necromancers were, were put out of the land? Well, we can, we can come to a conclusion as we think about those two pieces together that those were sources of information. Very different, right? Very, very alternate sources of information. Two different types of revelation, you could say. And that's really relevant to our story because Saul is desperately in need of some intelligence, some guidance. He needs some information. He's got an army knocking on the door. And historically, not only in Israel, but in all of the ancient Near East, the king would seek help and wisdom from from their gods and they would make military decisions accordingly. And so Saul and the kings of Israel did the same or were expected to do the same. They went to get a divine battle plan. Verse 5 reminds us of how serious the situation was. Saul, a man who had seen war his whole life, yet in this situation, verse 5 says, his heart trembled greatly. In verse 6, we see what the real problem is. Not just that the Philistines are on the borders of Israel, but that Saul inquired of the Lord But the Lord did not answer him. Saul, the text tells us, exhausted all the different means of communication with the Lord. Verse 6. But there is no answer. What do you do when God doesn't seem to answer your prayers? Have you had that experience before? Certainly Certainly you have. What do you do when you pray and there's only silence on the other end? There's really only two options when a believer faces that sort of problem. You either turn somewhere else for help or you keep praying. There's only two options. Well, the Philistine army didn't seem to be waiting and Saul didn't seem to be interested in waiting either. So he did what we often do. He asked a buddy. He had really dumb buddies. So he asked a buddy for advice and specifically, where can I find a medium to get advice? Now, ironically, there's a lot of irony in Samuel. Saul himself had put the mediums out of the land, but apparently they could still be found relatively easily. He just asks someone else, one of his servants, okay, I know I put them out of the land, but like, where are they? Because I know they're still here, right? It shows, says something about his administration. 
Saul's servants knew right where to find one. And so we get through the end of verse 5 or 6 or I guess verse 7. So what can we learn from all this? Well, there are many lessons, but let's consider a few quickly. First of all, I think we should note the impact, the sobering impact that Saul's crisis had in his life. We know that Saul has rejected God and refused to rule and live the way that God was calling him to. Saul had arrogantly decided that he knew better than God did. So Saul chose to go his own way. And now he is stuck. Have you ever done that? You thought you knew better than God and realized, whoops, I don't know better than God. Hopefully you've had some of those moments of clarity. Well, Saul is stuck. It's amazing how our problems have this incredible ability to just kick our crutches out from under us. It's amazing how quickly our problems can blow up the little comforts of our world that we've been depending on. It's amazing how little money can actually comfort you when you're facing grief or death. It's amazing how how empty your hobbies can feel when you realize that your marriage or your world is falling apart. That's one of the effects of trials, is it not? Our trials reveal what we are trusting in. And often, if we're able to see our chosen Savior, the the false saviors that we're trusting in, and, and God in His grace reveals to us that little Savior can't cut it. Saul felt pretty confident in his kingly abilities, as long as there were no Philistines, right? As long as there were no problems in the kingdom. But when the Philistines came knocking, all of a sudden, Saul starts praying. I hope that's not the pattern of our lives, that we pray only in major crises. For Saul, clearly, he realized, "Uh uh-oh, I'm not enough. I don't have the resources for this situation. Well, does that not remind us of why, especially since we have the New Testament, of why trials are God's most common instrument for change in the life of the believer? Because they reveal what it is we're hoping in. They reveal the essence of our faith. This is why the picture of gold being purified in fire is so helpful for us. Burning away. Trials have a tendency to burn away our unbelief. And they reveal to us whether we are trusting in the Lord or if we're trusting in something else. So believer, don't waste your trial. There are all sorts of trials that are represented in this room. Some major, some minor, some mundane, and everything in between. Don't waste your trial. If it has to do with a toddler and a diaper or deep, deep hurt and betrayal, don't waste your trial. If it has to do with a diagnosis or an in-law, don't waste your trial. But what brings us to the troubling fact is that this brings us to the troubling fact that Saul prayed and God responded in a way that we wouldn't expect. God ignored him. Why? Why didn't God answer? I mean, doesn't the Bible promise that God will answer those who call upon his name? Doesn't the Bible say that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved? Why didn't God respond to Saul? Did God ignore him? More importantly, will he do that to me and you? 
Well, the answer for this question comes with a closer examination of the text. The text gives us a picture of a Saul who did all the right things on the outside, but his inside was out of order. He did the motions, but his heart was wrong. He did all the right things, but he had a wrong heart. This is the picture of a man going through the outward mechanics of religion, but on the inside he had a wicked, rotten heart. We'll pick up more on Saul's action in a moment, but for now we should notice a few things. First of all, remember, God has already rejected Saul back in chapter 15. God's rejected him because of his disobedience and the Spirit of God has left Saul. So God is just keeping his word. He's left him. But that still leaves us with the disturbing question, will God do that to us? Right? Are are we just one sin away from God refusing to hear our prayers? From God abandoning us or rejecting us? We see, that brings us to an important point. We have to understand that God's rejection of Saul was because of Saul's rejection of God. Saul didn't want God. He didn't want anything to do with God. Deep down, all of his actions made it clear. Deep down, Saul didn't want God's help. He didn't want God's rule. He didn't want God's word. He didn't want God's spirit. All of that is evidenced here in this scene. Saul was not seeking God and God rejecting him, saying, no, no, no. Saul wasn't seeking God. He wasn't seeking God himself. He was just seeking the perks. Have you seen this before? Saul didn't want God. He wanted the benefits of God. Saul needed information, but he didn't want communion. This is a false desperation. Saul is like the kid in college who comes home, not because he wants to be with his parents, but because he wants their money. In 1 Chronicles chapter 14, the author of Chronicles looks back on Saul's life and he makes it clear what Saul's motive was. In chapter 14, verse 10, it might be 10, 14, Saul did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. You see, Saul was not seeking God. Saul just wanted the perks. We've said this for weeks that Saul is the picture of the apostate. The one who identifies himself with the covenant community. In other words, the one who is a member of the church. The one who is active in church activities. The one who is involved in a Sunday school class. The one who comes on Wednesday nights, even when we don't have spaghetti. And yet, deep down, he's not in it for the Lord. He's just in it for the religious perks. Maybe church makes him feel good about himself. Maybe church is good for business. Or maybe deep down, he just wants some heaven when he dies. A little insurance policy. So he just goes through the motions. This man doesn't want God. He doesn't want a king. He just wants some extra security. This is the man who, what's even more disturbing, he, but he believes in God. Right? He clearly believes in God, but he's unwilling to give up his sin. This is a fact that will be demonstrated time and time again, over and over again in the life of the unbeliever. Because when it comes down to it, the unbeliever is unwilling to give up his sin. He refuses to repent. 
Friends, it doesn't matter how much you say you believe in God. You cannot have God and reject his rule. It doesn't work. You can't get God's kingdom and reject the laws of the king. True faith will always be accompanied by repentance. Saul was approaching God in all the right external ways. He was inquiring of the Lord in all the right mediums or all the right means. But Saul did so without even one single tear of repentance. One Puritan author commented on this sad fact. He said, How infinitely precious would one tear of genuine repentance have been in that dark hour? Brothers and sisters, God has promised that he will never despise a broken spirit and a contrite heart. But Saul didn't have that. He just wanted God's stuff. In Joel chapter 2, Israel is reminded, Rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he will return to you. He relents over disaster. If Saul had returned to the Lord, I believe that the Lord would have accepted him. But he didn't. And so we must continue, right? There's much more we could say here, but there's a witch in this text. So let's get to, let's keep, let's keep going. Let's move now to a second scene in the text. Saul's desperation, verses 8 through 14. In verse 8, the Halloween theme continues because Saul gets dressed up. I'm proud of that one. Yeah. <laughs> He goes to visit with the witch of Endor and he gets all disguised. I suppose there could be a couple of reasons for disguising himself. But when it comes down to it, Saul is a king. So he can do what he wants, right? So what that means is I think the only reason that Saul disguised himself is because he's ashamed. He's ashamed. Sin is shameful. In fact, I think that's one of the best ways to really determine the purity of your heart and the purity of your actions, the purity of your motives. Whenever you're being secret about something, whenever you don't want to share something with someone else, you need to be really suspicious. That's probably a sign that somewhere you have some sinful motives. I'm not talking about surprise birthday parties, right? You know what I'm talking about. We all have these things that we try to do in private, are you, thinking, are you thinking about something that you wouldn't want someone else to know about? Are you visiting a website that you wouldn't want anyone to know you visited? Do you watch or eat or buy things in private so others can't see? That's probably a sign that something fishy is going on in your heart. You see, sin stinks. And so we usually try to sin alone in a corner in an attempt to hide the smell. But Saul's motivated. So he goes to the witch and he delivers this chilling request down in verse 8. He says, Divine for me a spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. Well, this woman was concerned, mainly because she was operating an underground business. And it reminds him of his hypocrisy, right? Don't you know that Saul has expelled us from the land? How, how I could die for this, she says. But this reveals Saul's hypocrisy even more. Because apparently, if you think about it, law just, Saul just wanted to appear tough. He just wanted to appear righteous that he had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. Apparently, there was the death penalty. She was afraid for her life. 
Saul didn't really care. He didn't really care. He was visiting her on the side. Saul's hard heart continued as he rushed into sin. She gave him chances to stop and he continued. He had already made up his mind. So he swore to her, you will be safe. Have you ever been there? Have you ever made up your mind that you're going to sin and no one is going to stop you? You hide from the people who tell you not to. You avoid people. Brothers and sisters, this is why we should always be concerned when people who are involved in church just suddenly disappear. There's all sorts of reasons that could be the case. But when you see people in your Sunday school class that suddenly drop out, be concerned. There may be something that's going on that has nothing to do with sin or they may be hiding because we run from the light. Well, Saul had already made up his mind that he was going headlong into this and that was nothing was going to stop him. Should we not remember, brothers and sisters, there's nothing more dangerous than the belie- for the believer than this kind of premeditated, hard-hearted, willful, cold, and decisive rebellion. Have you ever done these sorts of things? I have. It scares me to think about it. Make a decision. I'm going to do this. I want it too much. Those are the moments when we are the most vulnerable to the fires of hell. As William Blakey puts it, he says, Most terrible is the effect of cherished sin. What are the sins in your life that you cherish? That you're unwilling to give up? Saul asks for Samuel to be brought up. And to the reader's astonishment, at least my my astonishment, it worked. Maybe even to the witch's astonishment. Some people say she was like, whoa, it worked, right? I don't take that interpretation, but perhaps it could be the case. Because suddenly, all of a sudden, it seems like Saul's disguise failed him. And the witch recognized him and realized who he was. I wonder if he went home and threw his spear at his makeup guy. You know, that's what he does. He probably did. Either way. Verse 14 is a verse that seems straight out of a horror novel. The witch describes Samuel as an old man coming up wrapped in a robe. Can't you just imagine this? What does Saul do to this? The text says he bows down and paid homage to Samuel. Okay, let's stop again and think, think about this because there's a couple of things that we need to address here. First of all, we see even more ways that Saul's heart has hardened. The passage makes it clear Saul is a very religious guy on the outside. I mean, don't you find it ironic? Did you catch how Saul promised the witch she would be safe? He swears by a higher name than his own. The name above every name. He swears by the name of the Lord. Verse 10. Don't you find it ironic That Saul, the one who has rejected God, is now swearing by his name? Do you have those inconsistencies in your own life? Or what about this? Don't you find it ironic that Saul, who has rejected God and his word, who, who has gone and killed all the priests in the land and is now frustrated that the priests aren't helping him? You remember that? He killed all the priests. And now, when he has a chance to talk to someone among the dead, who does he call? A prophet of the Lord. That doesn't even make sense. Sin makes us crazy, folks. It does. Foolish. He calls on Samuel, a prophet of the Lord. And I think it's an impulse that's described in Romans chapter 1. That deep down, 
Deep down, Saul knows, just like every other man who has ever lived, that there is a God and that he alone has the source of knowledge. Saul was convinced that God was the one who had the information that he needed. In those moments of crisis, where did he run? He did it wrong and he didn't get there, but he had that impulse. God has what I need. We should, put our li- we should put our lives in a position around unbelievers so that in the moment of crisis in their life, where will they run? Once, before I was a pastor, I, my wife and I were in a running club that we were heavily involved with in, in evangelism. And there was a man who did not like me. He did not like me in my faith, and he did not want to talk to me. Well, he got sick, and so I went and visited him in the hospital. And no one had come to see him. He'd been there for days. He couldn't believe that I came. And in that moment, he shared his spiritual story with me. He's not a believer and still, to my knowledge, is not a believer. But in that, he knew there, this is a Christian. And that is where the source of knowledge is. And I need, I need to talk to him. Be that kind of person in your circles. Be that kind of person that someone can run to when their world falls apart. Saul had the right impulse That knowledge is found in God. It's an impulse that God has given to all humanity. That there is a God. And that something can be known of him. Deep down, Saul knew that. He was even convinced that God had the information that he needed. But notice this. Saul's belief in God did not prevent Saul from being damned to hell. You can believe in God. You can pray. You can even read. You can even like the Bible. You can even put a sticker about it on your car. And God can still damn you to hell. Unless you repent and turn from your sin and by faith look upon Christ, there is no hope. Our religiosity can be dangerous. Especially in East Tennessee where it is still acceptable to be a Christian. There's nothing in the world more dangerous than being a religious hypocrite and not knowing it. You will find it also ironic in verse 14 that Saul bowed down and paid homage to Samuel. The man who refused to honor God, the man who despised Samuel's message, the man who murdered all the prophets is now bowing down in homage to to Samuel. Now, most commentators believe that Saul did this not out of his own impulse, but perhaps because of the witch's instruction to be nice to the dead, right? She's got it. Maybe she wants a working relationship with him. I don't know. Maybe that's the case. But it's interesting. The man who refused to obey and honor God was willing to obey a witch. I think I wish we could explore this more. I think the ladies in the Romans Bible study will explore this much more uh, on Sunday. But it's a quick reminder to us. We all serve someone. We either serve God or we serve sin. We all have a master. You are either a slave to sin or you are a slave to Christ. You remember Jesus said in John chapter 8, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Saul was bowing to his idol. He obeyed his false God. You see, the false promise of sin is that sin offers us freedom. 
It promises us freedom, freedom from God and freedom from his oppressive laws and his strict sexual ethics and and freedom from boredom and freedom from emptiness. It's all a lie. You've tasted that, right? It's all a lie. Only Christ can offer that kind of satisfaction. Only Christ can offer true freedom. That is how the power of sin becomes, begins to be broken in your life, brother and sister. When you begin to see past the bait and you see the hook. When you see, that won't make me happy. You don't have power over me in that area. That's the difference in the believer and the unbeliever. Believers are set free from sin. But for the unbeliever, they are slaves to sin. Saul was a slave to sin. Sinners, you, sinners can't really be free. They can't really be happy. Not in sin. Only Christ can deliver that. I feel the need to make a comment on the existence of mediums and necromancers, especially after Halloween. We could spend quite a bit more time on this. But I think we should ask, I mean, was this episode real? All of my heroes in the Reformation, Martin Luther and John Calvin and John Chrysostom in the early church, even John Chrysostom, they, they looked at this and they explained this away in all sorts of all sorts of different ways. They many folks say that this is a piece of elaborate fakery, that the that Saul and the medium were both uh, were both tricked, that they had, you know, different visions and, and that they it didn't really happen. There's all different ways they say this, but but I think we come to the question, I mean can this really happen? Right? Are humans able to commune with the dead? Well, the questions, if you ask that question, the questions keep coming and they come much more quickly. And we could talk about this for a long time. But let me just say a few things about this. First of all, the Bible makes it very clear in Ephesians chapter 6 that there are unseen spiritual forces that would terrify us if we could see them, that are beyond our imagination. Forces that I would, I would guess that if we could see, we would probably be reading our scripture a little more. I saw a quote from John MacArthur this morning. I'll just mention this. He said, make Satan get over a lot of Bible to get to you. Isn't that good? Yeah. That's free. That's from MacArthur. There are unseen spiritual forces of evil that we can't even imagine. Things that we don't understand. And while some may say that this story is fake, I think that the details of the text are too realistic to deny unless we are willing to deny that the author of Samuel was also duped. Unless he had bought into it. The dead man is none other than a prominent man of God. And when he comes, he comes speaking the true word of God. Right? That doesn't sound fake to me. And furthermore, this man, Samuel, he issues a prophecy in verse 18 and 19 that actually is fulfilled. You also remember that the scripture openly condemns these practices in multiple places. The the practices of necromancers and mediums and sorcery and fortune tellers. It doesn't condemn them as fake. It doesn't condemn them for their deceit, but it condemns them because they are wicked. I take this to mean that this is a genuine account and that this dark art is indeed possible and could even, I suppose, be practiced to today, this day. I find it interesting that if there are those who aspire to make a career as a necromancer, they will find Psalm or Samuel 28 very frustrating when it comes to how-to tips. It doesn't say how-to, it just describes what was taking place. Now, 
I think that this is the most appropriate time I could think of to at least say this, that for us as Christians, and there are many reasons for this, we must distance ourselves from fortune tellers, astrologers, Ouija boards, claims of exorcism, and any part of people or the media that celebrate it. We need to be clear on this. And and I think the danger for us is not so much that we're inclined to run to a palm reader, but that we're more inclined to watch shows that somehow celebrate this sort of darkness. And in, in watching them, we may participate in that celebration. I'll say the day after Thanksgiving that we, or after Halloween, that we at least seem to be thinking about the ways that we celebrate Halloween, but I'll save that for, for another time. But this isn't a comfortable, isn't it a comfortable note for us at least to see, no matter what you think of how this works in this passage, look what God did. God hijacked wickedness for his own purpose. He does this all the time, right? He doesn't have to have righteous servants for him to accomplish his purpose. If he did, where would we be, right? That's why Jesus had to come because God couldn't find anyone righteous. David wasn't enough. Noah wasn't enough. Moses wasn't enough. John the Baptist wasn't enough. God had to send his son. God loves to hijack wickedness for his own purpose, So I'd like to suggest that God both permitted and somehow enabled this event to take place and then he used it for his own purposes. Here we see God's true word spoken even through an illegitimate method. Remember when uh, Paul in Corinthians, uh, I can't think of the passage now, where he's talking about people preaching the gospel for false motives and he's like, whatever, God, God can convert anyway, right? Reminded that God used the mouth of a donkey. What limits are there upon our God? A final, a third, a third scene here is in Samuel's word to Saul. I'm going to run out of time. Verses 15 through 19. We now turn to the content of Samuel's message. And we could say many, many things here. But it's essential to notice that Samuel is basically repeating the same message that he said all through his life. I hope that if I somehow was brought back from the dead, I'd just be preaching still. Just keep me going. Whatever. Right? He's saying the same stuff he said to Saul during his lifetime. When Saul complains that God has been silent in verse 15, Samuel says, well, it's because you become the Lord's enemy. Why do you even bother with me? I'm on his side. He says again in verse 17, he reminds him what he told him in his life, that God had torn the kingdom from you. And verse 18 was incredibly important because it tells us why. It's because Saul did not obey the voice of the Lord and did, not, and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. There's so many things here, but my goodness. Let's, let's at least draw this important lesson. If we despise God's word, he will remove it from us. When we clearly hear and know and understand God's word, why would we expect that if we ignore it, that God will give us more? That could be the reason that some of us aren't growing. Because we fail to act on simple, clear instruction for the Lord, and so we're not growing anymore. Instead, what we see here is that God has become silent to Saul. And not only has he become silent, but God has become Saul's enemy. God is actively working to bring him down. That is terrifying. Saul has chosen to be an enemy of God, and he will now find that God is a most formidable enemy. 
We should remember that when we refuse to obey God's laws, we are setting ourselves up in opposition to Him. We see Saul's life end because of it. Saul has chosen to be an enemy of God and he will now find God as his own enemy. Verse 19 makes this clear. Samuel makes it clear that God is going to give him and his sons over to the Philistines and they would both be with me. What a chilling thing to hear. In other words, God's going to kill you tomorrow. God's going to kill you and it will be his doing. It will not be an accident. God is going to take your life. Brothers and sisters, this reminds us of the terrifying end for all of those who refuse the Lord's mercy and rule. The wages of sin is judgment, and that judgment is death. The inevitable result of sin, all sin, is judgment of a holy God. Saul hears this news and he sinks into total despair. There's nothing left for Saul in this life. All of his money, all of his wives, all of his pleasures, they're not important to him now. He didn't, notice how he didn't even want food. It's not a comfort to him. Nothing was left in this life for him but fear, anxiety, and self-loathing. It's a picture of the man without Christ. It's the picture of the one without hope of God in the world. It may not be pronounced and prominent until the end of their life. They may not even notice it until the first moment of their death. But deep down, that's how all unbelievers live without hope and without God in the world. There's nothing left for him. And that's all that exists for those who come to the end of their lives without God. What is left for them? Judgment. It's a picture of utter despair and it's the eternal future of all those who have been justly abandoned by God. In verses 20 through 25, we have this picture of Saul going into the darkness. It's a strange inclusion about how the witch is concerned about his diet and then eventually Saul eats and goes into the night. Let me just briefly draw your attention to this. Saul's behavior here in verses 15 or 20 through 25 is remarkably similar to Judas. Judas, as he eats another Last Supper, Saul, just like Judas, ate a little bit of food. And then in verse 25, the text says that Saul got up and went away that night. Listen as I read John chapter 13, verse 30. So after receiving the morsel of bread, Judas immediately went out, and it was night. Do you see the similarities? Even yet, though the exit of Saul and the exit of Judas are both dark and bleak, and there's many comparisons we could work through, do they not remind us of someone else who after supper entered into darkness? Mark chapter 15, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God turned away from Saul because of sin. And God turned away from Jesus because of our sin. God abandoned Jesus so that you and I would not have to be abandoned for our sin. Jesus is the true and better David. And let us turn to him in allegiance and praise. Let's close in prayer. Father, we give all glory and all praise to Christ. Would you help us to lose our appetite for sin 
so that we would crave like newborn babes the milk of your word and deeds of righteousness so that all the world would look upon our lives and see that there is a God in heaven and he can be found through Jesus Christ and his gospel. Help us to live in a way that is worthy of the calling which we have received. We thank you for Christ. To him be glory. We ask this in your name. Amen. You're dismissed, church. Go in peace.